is not what I am Even though my zip code has changed I might smile and enjoy Where I'm currently employed Your soul can't be rearranged But it's hard to understand It's so hard to understand Farewell, fam It's episode 13 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast Your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast I'm Steve Garshinsky and with me, as always, is J.P. Breen and Ryan Top. This week, we'll talk about the World Series matchup, more on Corey Ray, and answer some listener questions. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps fans find the podcast, so just take a minute and leave a few stars. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. You can also follow Ryan, JP, and myself on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. Uh, we're featured on Disciples of Euchre, so check out disciplesofeuchre.com for great brewer's content. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. So, JP, uh, we'll take a minute just to start off. I wanted to check in and see if you wanted to gloat about the uh, World Series matchup uh, Astros versus Dodgers. I know you picked that off the bat where Ryan and I look like idiots with our uh, Cleveland pick going down in flames to the Yankees. Guys, I recency bias. I, that probably is part of it. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was, um, I picked the, the two teams that I thought since about May have just been the best teams in the league. Uh, and I know that it's a dangerous. It, Even with game. Cleveland's run there for a while, I mean, Cleveland ripped off 22 wins in a row and they were still doing pretty well even after they finally lost one. Yeah, but I still thought the Astros were the best overall team. Okay. I'm not arguing right? that. And The Astros without Verlander, though, who came in very late in the picture, they are not the best team. I disagree with that. You, don't, you think that they were better even without Verlander? Because without Verlander, they're not in the World Series. Yeah, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, because, I mean, but we're also talking matchups and like how it plays out. Right. Well, and that's why I'm saying just because I thought the Astros and the Dodgers were the two best teams doesn't necessarily mean that that actually plays out that way in the, you know, in the playoffs. That's it almost completely... never does. Right. And so, I mean, I'm happy to gloat because uh, I'm correct and super happy to say that. Um, but. Are you really I'm super not, happy? I'm not, I'm not pretending that I'm not pretending that luck didn't play a whole lot into it because I also don't think that the Yankees were one of the four best teams either. No, but you know, looking at the postseason, I mean, again, Cleveland is still really good, and the Cubs were obviously the defending champs and had most of their team back. Did it seem like there were a lot more teams that legit, legitimately were in the mix this year? I mean, you could have picked any of those teams, and you know, people I don't think would have said you were crazy. Well, I think we talked about this. I mean, baseball, the top, it was so top heavy this year with there being, you know, four or five really great teams, like legitimately, like classically great teams where usually baseball only produces a couple teams, maybe in a season that are this good. They had, they had five really, and I, I would disagree. I think the Yankees were legitimately a pretty great team. I think it got a little bit obscured. A great team? I mean, in a normal year, that Yankees team probably would have been one of the top two teams in baseball. They weren't this year just because there were so many good teams in overall in baseball. But, like, you just had behemoths in, you know, winning nearly every division. The Red Sox looked silly bad, and they weren't a silly bad team. It was a really, really talented team that won a bunch of games, had really great players, and yeah, they had some guys who had down years, but they looked silly bad in the playoffs and got, you know, dismissed very quickly. And they were legitimately a, a very good team. I mean, so the, first of all, I guess the Yankees, I, I really struggle to figure out how the Yankees are like a great team. Um, <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not even sure if I can name their entire starting rotation. Uh Right. I mean, so you've got Sonny Gray, you've got Severino, you've got 
CC Sabathia, who I'm not considering being, you know, a phenomenal mid-rotation starter, even if he did have a couple of good starts. Tanaka, who got knocked out of the rotation for a while. Who's their fifth? I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, they they were set up for a good postseason run because they can hit homers and they've got a good bullpen. Like, they um, have a, a remarkably deep bullpen. They go, like, six, seven deep in the bullpen. Isn't that the way you win in the postseason now? Isn't yeah. that the key? You sure. just, you know, who cares what everybody else is? Just get a deep bullpen and run them through however you need to. Right. Well, I mean, you you want to have good you want to have three good starters and a deep bullpen, right? And that's why you saw a lot of um you started to see a lot of teams really start to emphasize the back end of their bullpen when they thought that they had a shot to get into the to the postseason because that was the way that you try to shorten games and be able to make it as successful as possible. Um and if you can have guys who can hit for power, you have a shot to be able to put some things together in October, right? I mean, it's it's much more difficult for a team like, you know, the Royals or whatever, even though they had a great a great run. Like, if you're not hitting homers, it's much more difficult to be able to, to c- consistently maintain that kind of success. Well, stringing uh, but- together hits is just so difficult now, especially once you get into the bullpen of teams and you're facing some of these good bullpens, getting hits strung together when you're not hitting for power is going to be really hard because they're going to match up you and they're going to, right. you know, you're going to be seeing a ton of velocity and wicked nasty breaking stuff. And you're just not right. going to have the opportunity to, you know, bab up your way into, into good fortune very often. But when you're saying that most of the time, because I take the point that there were a lot of good teams this year, I do wonder are there bad teams in the postseason a lot of years? Because it seems to me that I don't remember a lot of years in which there are just bad teams because I know that the narrative has been that, you know, like the the better teams are getting better and the worst teams are getting worse because they're trying to position themselves for draft picks or, or like complete rebuilds um, and things like that now. But um, like, I, I don't remember like bad teams making the postseason. I mean, so, we've seen we've seen some teams that were the seventh, eighth, ninth best in baseball. Maybe that's even being charitable. Go on and win World Series. The Giants but that's not, did that. That's not well, the that's same a different discussion. issue. No. Sure, you're you're talking about like truly legitimately bad teams. I mean, because even like an '83 win Cardinal team won the World Series. I'm not worried about the World Series though. I'm worried about whether or not they were a good baseball. An '83 win t- Cardinal team made the postseason. Did you not think that was a good baseball team at all? Or was it just the 83 win Cardinals? Team? No, I understand that, but that 83 win Cardinals team still had Albert Pujols and Chris Carpenter and Adam Wainwright. Uh, yeah, and Adam that Wainwright, holiday, young, right? Uh, I'm not nope. sure if they had a holiday. Holiday, that, holiday, yeah, holiday didn't come until 2009. But who did Holiday replace? They had somebody before Holiday. No, they were. I I don't remember in at that point were they on the last legs of Jim Edmonds and Scott Rowland. I was gonna, okay. That's probably what it was. But I don't think those those guys. So the Cardinals were legitimately a juggernaut, awesome team when they got that trio of Edmonds, Pujols, and Rowland. And they had those guys in that lineup. Again, that's why I went back to asking, like, were they a bad team or did they just happen to be an 83-win team so in the they right weren't, season? They weren't that good of a team. They were much better teams the years before. Like, okay. they were a really great team in 2004 when they got swept by but, the Red but, Sox. But you're also citing a team that's a decade old now. So which – and which team are we talking about? Like, what year was that? Was that was the 2006 Cardinals. Six, yeah. Yeah. 2006 Cardinals, okay. Yeah, they won, they won the division with 83 wins and then – yeah, because I'm I'm looking at their roster. Okay, real quick. Otherwise, I'm going to move on here. Well, okay. So, we'll I mean, look up their Yadier, roster. They had Yadier Molina. They had who Albert pre Pujols. pre hitting Molina though. Yeah, but defensively, yeah, he was a good defender. Yeah, well, a good defender, might great be defender, underselling it. Yeah. Uh, so David Eckstein, you know, great American hero, right? <laughs> uh, and then you went to that. You, you went to that third. Juan Encarnacion, right? So they, but then they still had, you know, Chris Carpenter. They still had, well, God, 
That team was bad. Jeff Supon carried them no, through the NLCS. Yeah, no, that team's bad. I mean, they had <laughs> they had Jason Marquis, Mark Mulder, who had a seven fourteen ERA. Anthony Reyes, was right? On and there. Dan Heron was on the. They they had traded Dan Heron to get him. My goodness. Yeah, but the top of that good team. The top of that team was good though. Yeah, absolutely. they had superstars. And they, had, they, and they had a great month run. And Jeff Supon pitched out of his mind. He got himself a contract that is not at all regrettable. <laughs> that's a different uh, story. So. Yeah. That's all a different right. podcast. Anyways, um, anyways hey, guys. Uh, Keith Law was just out in Arizona, did a little bit of Arizona Fall League coverage. And uh, he had a brief write-up on Corey Ray that I know some people were uh, disappointed with. Um, you know, he still said uh, Corey Ray is a good athlete, quick action uh, and actually playing better defense in center field. Um, he had some good at-bats, but it seemed like he couldn't, you know, barrel up the ball at all. So even even though the approach was right, basically he couldn't hit. So And he um, cited the swing. Yes, he cited the swing. He said he's not. he doesn't have a toe tap that he used to have, and he's not hitting with power. Um, so I guess, JP, if you want to just kind of go over the process, because I know you had a few issues with the write-up, um, and I think just – everything that goes into a write-up like this to begin with. So, uh, again, it's it's a limited number of looks at a guy. And, and what else right. did you kind of have an issue with as far as this write-up, at least to uh, put some people at ease as far as the, um, I guess, lack of progress for Ray in, in the Arizona Fall League? Right. So I suppose a couple of things. Number one, this isn't an effort to try to redeem Corey Ray in any way because I, I – I know a few people have gotten quite a few looks at him this year and everybody has come away not being impressed in terms of saying he doesn't have an impact bat this year. Um, but everybody's really latching on to Keith Law because it's the first kind of national prospect writer to take a look at, at Ray and be able to put some words down. And it's difficult because the Arizona Fall League is this place where all the scouts get together, they look at a couple of games, and then some guys get a lot of hype, some guys get you know, knock down a peg or, or whatever. And everything from the Arizona fall league is overhyped because it's just, that's where everybody had a chance to see these players. Um, and it's really difficult, especially once you get to pitchers and realizing that they're in Arizona and, and however that plays out and some guys are fatigued and some guys have trying to play a full season for the first time, like Corey Ray, who at this point you do, you do wonder if he needed to, to spend more time, uh, playing baseball after the grind of a fl- first full season, or if he needed some time off, you know, there are probably some different things to say about that. So inherently the Arizona fall league, I think just gets too much emphasis placed on it. But my issue with the law write up and taking too much away from it be- is the fact that law is clearly writing it after only seeing Ray. It it looked like only one game based on the write up, but it maybe could have been a, game a couple or two. of games. Yeah. And, and he's citing swing issues without actually giving any information about the swing at all and suggesting that the swing issue is somehow encapsulated in the fact that the toe tap is, is now absent. Um, and that's not, that's not a reason that somebody's going to struggle to hit for power or struggle to barrel it up or anything like that. And, and Corey Ray has been tinkering with his swing for the last couple of years. I mean, it's always been... If there was an issue with Corey Ray, it was the fact that people did wonder if his hit tool was going to be able to translate, not only against lefties, but even just how good he was going to be able to consistently barrel up baseballs. Um, So a lot of the things that Law is highlighting are things that everybody has kind of known. Um, But now that he says there are questions about the swing, everybody is going to immediately go to this and say, he's got questions about the swing, but... There's nothing. There's nothing there. There's no meat to that report at all. There's but there's no saying, new information. There's no new information, but it's presented in a very stark manner. But it's very speculative. It's saying he's got swing issues, and then and we should point speculating out speculating that it has something to do with a toe tap. And also, that, it's a it's a stark manner because the way this is written up was bullet points about certain players. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's one of the things about about the AFL too, right? Like in writing a quick write-up about a bunch of players that you've only seen for one game, you're just going to be able to give uh, bullet points because number one, law isn't going to take the time to write up full write-ups for ESPN Insider, uh, you know, where not a lot of people are going to read it in general, but it's not a good use of his time to write full write-ups off of one viewing anyway. 
Right. So, I mean, Ryan, where do you think uh, – what should our expectations for Ray be now? Or is there anything we should look for in the AFL uh, with Ray that would maybe, you know, indicate he's getting back on track a little bit? I mean, if he starts hitting, <laughs> that would that would be nice. Uh, I don't know that it – I don't know that if he does start hitting – or if he does not start hitting. I don't know if that really changes anything at this point. I think that we're we're much more in a mode now where we need to look at, you know, what is he going to do after, you know, having the off season and coming back in next year and I presume we're going to see a move to double A. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, would Okay, here, do we expect just kind of brace everybody. Do we expect Corey Ray to basically drop off a top 100 list this coming uh winter? For the most part, I would guess that's probably going to happen. I wouldn't be shocked, though, if somebody wanted to continue to be – if somebody really liked him and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to stick with him and keep him at the back of my, my top 100 or whatever, I wouldn't be shocked if somebody did that. But for the most part, I think, yeah, he's, he's been passed up in the system. He's been passed up, you know. The, once you're a year and a half out of, uh, of the draft, you know, the draft status – means less and less the further away you get removed from it. And, and he's so, yeah, a guy he was that a top five pick, but what was it? Mid season. Was it Keith law? Mid season still had him ranked within two spots of Brinson. He had Brinson low in the thirties compared to most other places. But I want to say that he had Ray just a couple spots behind. Yeah. The, yeah, the mid season lists though are not, that's not tear everything up and rebuild from scratch. That's moving guys around on your list that existed before. That's the process that those lists generally are. Um, and there were still people saying positive things about Ray, but it's not. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's harder and harder and harder to find things to really latch onto because the production just has not been there for so long now. Right. Uh, but I think one thing that you do want to think about in terms of Ray and his potential rankings is for myself, this looks a lot like what people were doing with Brett Phillips a year ago. Right. I mean, one of the things that Corey Ray that people were saying is they weren't sure if he can handle center. And I think most people now are pretty comfortable saying he can handle center field defensively. And he still is a great athlete. He can still potentially hit for 15, 20 homers. Um, you know, people got more questions about whether or not he's going to be able to hit lefties or whether or not he's going to be able to hit, you know, 260, 270. Um, but you know, the, the core skills are there to be able to still have a quote unquote high floor. But the questions are now whether or not he has impact potential. Um, I mean, one of the issues, though, with the Brett Phillips comp, not really a comp. You didn't give a comp, but no, no, no. saying how Phillips, you know, fell as a prospect. Phillips had shown the ability to hit in the minors. He hit in pro ball a bit in, before in, he fell off. In, in a ball, in a high A, in a very, very huge hitter-friendly environment. Sure, he had but, not shown any ability to hit outside of a hitter-friendly environment. But, but that's still more than But Ray. that's still more than Ray has shown at this point. I've, yeah, that's fair. That, that's my only point there. So you, yeah. you mentioned... Uh, you hold mentioned, on, I had a question for JP. Well, hold on. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to bring up about... You mentioned uh, coming out of college, um, some scouts had an issue with his hit tool. Yeah. And whether it would translate. What were some of those issues? That, well, that's one of the things that we were looking back at. And Ryan and I were actually trying to research it this past week because we were just talking about it. It's very difficult to find. Everybody tends to mention it. In terms of saying in his little mini scouting reports or what have you, it does say that, you know, they wonder whether or not he, his hit tool is going to translate. Be, uh, Baseball America had something in which it said scouts have concerns about his hit tool and they don't really go into it very much. So some of it seems to be very vague. A little bit like Keith Law's concerns seem to be a little bit vague in terms of how it looks as well. But I know that some people were a little bit concerned on on whether or not his swing was a little bit too long. Um whether or not, you know, he once in a while had an arm bar in it. I don't necessarily, I don't remember seeing that in any video that I've seen, but uh, I think I remember reading it somewhere. Um, so don't quote me on that one. That one's just kind of coming to mind. So there are a lot of questions about whether or not, you know, he's going to hit lefties. And that's the one that's been kind of reiterated again and again and again. But if you look back at the pre-draft scouting reports on, on baseball prospectus on, Keith Law didn't have that because Keith Law had him at number one overall because Keith Law really liked the fact that he had a he he had impact potential, um, 
and in a down draft and like the vast majority of people taken in the first round of the 2016 draft have not been good and everywhere else pretty much had this little bullet point saying that scouts have concerned about his hit tool without really getting into it very much. Hey, can we real quick, just go over hit tool? Cause I know we were, the three of us were chatting about it online during the mm-hmm. week. Um, and I, I think you pointed out the one thing that people tend to uh, assume hit tool uh, correlates with is, you know, the ability to not strike out and mm-hmm. just put the bat on the ball. And batting average. And, yeah, basically in batting average. Low, low strikeout, high batting average is what most people think of hit tool. You had a little bit more of uh, – you had a different definition of that. Yeah, well, I think that – in terms of a quick and dirty definition of what a present hit tool looks like, I think you can look at batting average. You can t- you can tend to look at you know swinging strike rate uh, much more than strikeout rate because strikeout rate sometimes you can have a good hit tool, but you take a lot of pitches or your pitch recognition isn't great. Um, but if you have a 12, 13, 14 percent swinging strike rate, you don't that that raises some flags about kind of having. Uh, either pitch recognition issues, having holes in your swing, different things like that. But uh, one of the biggest things about somebody like Isan Diaz, who we were talking, we this is what we were talking about in relation to the hit tool, is everybody talks about projected hit tool. Projected hit tool is not the same thing as somebody hitting 230 now and saying that his projected hit tool, if somebody was putting it at a 60 or somebody was putting it at a 70, suddenly that's suspect. Because Isan Diaz, there's a, there's a difference between having the potential to hit something and being able to put that into practice or taking a different approach or trying to, you know, hit for more power. Um, you know, there are a lot of guys like Stephen Piscotti for the Cardinals. If he tried to not hit for power, his hit tool would be much, much higher than it is. Um, but his potential hit tool is still higher. So there's some discrepancy there that when you look at potential hit tool and you look at somebody like Isan Diaz who's hitting 230, uh, you should still recognize what a future hit tool takes into account, whether or not he can barrel up the baseball, whether or not he stays in the hitting zone for a long time, whether or not he's got a good swing, whether or not it's short and compact, uh, different things like that, which Isan Diaz shows again and again and again, but he doesn't actually put that into play. Uh, I don't remember... um, you know, kind of when he started to make this transition, but he started to try to hit for more power and you have to make changes in your swing in order to be able to do that. Um, and if he decided to hit for average again, his average would go much higher. Um, so I don't know, that's a kind of a rambling answer, but hopefully there were some things on that out of that that were useful a little bit. But I think the other thing you pointed out is it was more of an ability to barrel up the ball as opposed to just constantly put the bat on the ball. Oh, totally. Because it's good Absolutely. contact, not just contact. Absolutely. It's, it's the ability to drive the baseball in, you know, also, would you say that a good hit tool generally involves being able to hit it with authority, not necessarily for super big power, but at least be able to hit the ball hard to most of the field, depending on what pitch is given and what you're what you're seeing. Yeah. I mean, like the, somebody who has one of the best hit tools in the league outside of, you know, El Tuve is somebody like Christian Yellick, who... Christian Yelich has, I, I, you know, I, I was going to put a grade on it, but I'd just be guessing. Um, I've, I've seen people say 65, 70. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, yes. it's that good. But I realized that last week I said I wasn't comfortable putting grades on things because I'm not a scout. And then I almost did that and that would have been hypocritical. So I wasn't going to do that. Um, it's audio. People forget after they listen. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> um, but I mean, he's somebody who hits for what? 15 homers. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe hits- maybe in a good season you kind of get up around twenty, but yeah, he's not a huge right. power. Well, hitter. especially with a juice ball, right? Um, At this point, he's hitting and, fifteen to twenty. And you've got, but he has the ability to spray the ball with authority, to sting the ball with line drives, to hit the ball on the ground with power. He basically makes good contact to all fields, way more than the vast majority of hitters. In the and is it necessary for a good hit tool? Like, can you think of a guy who really is? A person who who favors either you know being a, a dead fastball hitter or a guy who likes the the off speed junk. I kind of feel like to have a really good hit tool to be able to say somebody really has a good hit tool, you need to be able to 
hit all the pitches. Not that you, there aren't going to be, you aren't going to struggle maybe with certain things like nasty sliders or something are kind of tough for everybody, but you need to, to show the ability to at least handle all of those things because you're going to see so many different types of looks and so many different types of sequences that for you to be a good hitter, you have to at least sort of have a plan of how to deal with all these different sorts of pitches. So you can't just be like, I, this guy likes hitting fastballs. Well, yeah, a lot of people do. But, you know, to be a truly good hitter, you need to be able to also do something with these other pitches as well. Right. And pitch recognition helps with that, right? And that matters. So it, well, it's getting into a situation in which you can hit for a high average uh, against righties and lefties. And you can be able to handle off-speed pitches. You can handle velocity. You can handle velocity in. You can handle velocity out. It's somebody like Ryan Braun, right? Yes. Like Ryan, Ryan Braun can handle fastball at 98 up and away. He can handle it in at the hands. He can he can just flip his wrists and hit it, hit it down the right field line on an outside slider. Like, he has such massive plate coverage. Um, somebody who doesn't have a good hit tool would you know and i know that it's not i apologize to andy for this would be ricky weeks right because just because apologize to his me too. well like his bat just doesn't stay in the zone long enough and it's a curse being so fast it is but it's also bat path right it i is, mean it's yeah. it's so it's both of it it's the fast it's the fact that his wrists are so fast but that his bat path has him not in the zone for very long. Like Brett Lowry used to be somebody whose bat was in the zone forever when he was with the Brewers and the Blue Jays changed it. The Blue Jays actually tried to get him to hit for more power. They changed his bat path and they messed him up. Basically. I mean, I don't think that's too strong of a word or too strong of a term to be able to say like he just, they messed up his swing. They messed up his approach and he could just not really come back for it. He hit for more power. Um, but he couldn't handle the zone as well. Uh, but I remember seeing him in the minors and his bat just stayed in the zone forever. Um, and so like, those are the types of guys that, and he was primarily a doubles hitter in the minors. Yeah. If I remember, he was not a big home run hitter in the minors. He was a doubles guy. And I think people were trying to project his power basically off of being young for most of the levels he was in and then basically hitting a lot of doubles. So, um, I don't know if we talked about on the podcast, but you brought this up when we were talking at some point about fake plate discipline. Is that yeah, that was covered? last week? We were we actually I couldn't remember if we talked about it in the broadcast or the podcast itself. Ryan it Ryan downloads and does not listen. <laughs> so anyway, yes, okay. So we talked about that already. All right, I'm I'm going to continue on. I, I'll I'll let that go then. Okay. If we hadn't, if we'd already talked about it, then whatever. Okay. So I can move on now. You're done. We're done, Steve. You're all set. Okay. Uh, so we have a question from Bill Walchak. Uh, we know the whole coaching staff is back next year, but would you rather have a now jobless Chris Basio or Mike Maddox instead of Derek Johnson? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> would you like quick. to? Would you like to tell why first, JP, or would you like me to? <laughs> oh, you can. I don't really have much to add on it. I mean, basically, uh, Johnson. What? The, the progress made by so many pitchers on the staff this year, uh, when you see something like that happen under a you know, coach, um, it's probably not a coincidence. It's probably not, you know, just this guy got really lucky. Um, and you wouldn't, especially from the outside. Now, and, you know, somebody inside. I would say be a, little, be a little bit careful on this because we've right. had pitching coaches, you know, turn around, quote unquote, turn around a staff or, or hitting coaches turn around, you know, the offense. And then it seems like within a year or two, everybody's screaming for him to be fired. Right. That's what, yeah, that's what those positions are for. Right. It's we have a pitching coach and a hitting coach, basically, so we have someone to fire before we have to fire the manager. That's that, not reductive at all, but that's solid. I mean, it, but, there's there's hey, a certain amount of truth to it. Yeah, let's be honest. There for, is for the fans, right? But there is a certain right. amount of like, okay, let's let's fire these guys first before we you know have to take the major oh. step. Because well, there are once, organizations once, that used to be much more true. It's less true now. There's much better process in MLB than there used to be. But. Well, and also once a GM dumps their manager, then all of a sudden, like it's really on them to get the team on track. Again, that used to be more true than it is now. But yeah, I mean, it's still somewhat. So, well, anyway, but yes, like I would say Dusty Baker's wondering what happened. Derek Johnson, 
you, you could point to numerous specific things. Uh, he has worked with Jimmy Nelson on mechanics and, and smoothing things out. And we know that because it's been reported over and over that that's a thing. Um, the, the as opposed Anderson, to those, as opposed to those pitching coaches that don't work on mechanics, but it, some of them don't really No, I mean, they're, they're not going to retool a guy. Not every co- well, not coach retool, but retool people's mechanics. They're, they're much more concerned about the mental side of it. Maybe, you know, everybody has their own specialty. Like Maddox wasn't going through and completely rebuilding people's mechanics. Right. right. But I, I take the point, like everybody's still going to be able to to point out things, but some people are much more concerned about the mental side. Some people are going to be much more concerned about, you know, molding pitchers into the right way. Some people are going to be like um, uh, the, the Mets pitching coach, the guy with the slider, uh, Worthen. Yeah. Um, or I'm thinking of uh, the guy in St. Louis who just retired recently. I've taught Dunk- everybody the sinker. Dunker. Yeah. Duncan. Duncan. And so Dunkirk. Dunkirk. <laughs> <laughs> But you've got Dave a situation like you've got a, the biggest thing that Derek Johnson has going for him is and the way that I tend to look at it, because I, I know a lot of guys have a lot of success in terms of understanding biomechanics, being able to understand how pitchers should be able to function. But when you have so many pitchers coming out and saying they like working with him, that that's really what you look for, because pitchers. Sir, everybody, all pitchers here. Uh, or need different things, I guess, right? And the best pitching coaches are the ones that can uh, vary their style, vary their uh, message, vary the way that they talk about things, vary the way that they talk about pitches, because not everybody learns the exact same way, and you need to be able to vary your message and to vary your technique based on who you're talking to. And every pitcher tends to get something different from different coaches and some of them mesh better than others. And that's why you find a lot of pitchers that when they do find a pitching coach, they like, they like to follow them if they can. Um, Or they at least keep going to them, even if they're not, uh, even if their relationship isn't necessarily team-based anymore. And so many people talk about Derek Johnson and like, and they like working with him. Um, And so you won't tend to hear a lot of guys say they don't like working with players, but you don't tend to hear a lot of pitchers say they really enjoy working with guys. And so many people with the Brewers have talked about how much they like Derek Johnson. And that's ultimately what, what it comes down to is, is pitchers don't like pitching coaches that don't help them get results or help them feel comfortable. And they moreover don't go on record talking about it that often. So the fact that so many Brewers pitchers like working with Derek Johnson so much is, is plenty enough for me to say that he should stay. Now, if somebody were to have poached Derek Johnson, and Chris Basio is still out there. Like if, if Derek, I don't believe this is going to happen, but, you know, speaking theoretically, if Derek Johnson were poached and, you know, Basio was out there, I'd be, you know, signing up, you know, to lead the bandwagon to get him to come back. Because I think he did a good job. And I think he mostly lost the job because Madden wanted to go with a guy he has spent a lot of time with and yeah. has had a lot him, of success with. Him and Eric Thames might have to have a discussion, but... Uh, Chris Basio could probably, they could get over that. <laughs> but yes, I mean, then that's, yeah. Are you asking who would you rather have between Basio and Maddox? Um, or you would just pick Basio. You like Basio better than Maddox. I, I think Basio has done very, very good things. I would, yeah. I don't know. I feel like Maddox, we've already seen that. I don't know. Sure. Whatever. Um, okay. So uh, we do have uh, Hyatt on Twitter was uh, basically trying to set up Ryan because Ryan uh, wrote a couple posts on uh, Disciples of Euchre, I guess it would be a couple weeks ago. Yeah, a couple weeks ago now. Uh, he wanted to know which free agent pitchers uh, the Brewers should try to uh, go out and get this offseason. And I know you had some thoughts. And again, we, <laughs> we briefly discussed it. But you think it, it's time to open up that checkbook and go out and get some guys. I think that if a t- if they're ever in a position to do it, it's now. And they may still – they're probably why, not Why is it now? It. Okay, so right now, if you look at their, their financial commitments in the moment to this upcoming season, if they were to bring every single player back 
that they have arbitration offers to. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You're looking at it basically capping out around $60 million to open this season, and they're not going to bring back everybody. They're going to non-tender some of these guys. So you're looking at realistically a payroll, and that's including the league minimum for the other roster spots. So I'm including all of that in here. We're looking at an opening day payroll realistically right now in the mid-50s, low to mid-50s, because they're not going to bring back some of these guys. So... There is room to add, and they have they have wiggle room. Potentially, they've been as high as two years ago. They opened 2015 with a payroll of over 100 million. They've been over 100 million, and the amount of money that's flowing into the game, it is hard to believe that they could not end up pushing into. This is the a lot of buildup for the guys you think that they should go. Well, up. but you asked why I think that this is a particular moment. The financial flexibility they've never had anything quite like this, where you go, there's a huge gap between what they realistically have shown they can spend and what they, you know, currently have are obligated to spend. They had it this year. But they weren't expecting to necessarily be good. So they I know that. I'm just saying, when you're saying that they've never had this much flexibility between how much they can spend and how much they are spending, they actually had more last year. Sure. But they also, again, they they didn't think they were in the position. I, I know. Think that I just want you to. I want you to have to say that you are seeing this as an opportunity to compete, so you want to be able to spend more money. Yeah, and I think that that's the preferable option right now is to spend money as opposed to trading away prospects. And that's you know that's my own personal bias. Well, I, that's because you you don't believe they should ever trade anybody if they're in the top two hundred prospects. No, that's not true. Stop fifty. I'm sure we have that. that. We have that. Uh, no, it's you can not go back and listen to past episodes not and true, find that. But, but anyway, anyway, but top fifty ends up being very fungible because then he wants to talk about the fact that you have to consider all possible top fifty lists <laughs> and personal top fifty I, lists. I think we could the say fact that all of the players that might be on one of those top fifty lists needs to expand. Well, remember Corey Ray. Uh, I think we could is say, still on top 50 list because top 50 lists haven't been updated I think yet. we could say that I do not like trading prospects probably about as much as anybody. Okay, so who do you so, think the Brewers should go out and get? Well, it's not a matter of who they should get. I'm thinking that... No, 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 no. You have to... No, you, you need to actually advocate for four specific people if you're going to make the argument that this is the time to do it. Otherwise, just saying that they should spend on magical pitchers and not well, go no, out. no, no, no. Okay, yeah, you're talking did, about, do- you're talking yeah, about no, dollar I, amounts, and we I have talk, a rough idea what guys are going to get. Yeah, I talked about specifically advocating for Jake Arrieta or you Darvish. And right. that's going to be incredibly and, difficult. And what, do you, what are, are they gonna going to go for? the Brewers aren't going to get them. The Brewers are almost certainly not going to get them, yes. Right. So who should they go for? Well, no, he wants Arietta that, that or is, Darvish. That was my point. Right, but they're not going to get them. But that was... Wait, wait, hold on a second. What do you think Arietta or Darvish will get on the open market? I think Arietta is going to get something around five years, 125 to $150 million. Okay. Probably... A little bit short of that. There may also be a um, there may also be an out clause in there because it's Boris and you know where the team. Sure, these are all boring details. But yeah, I think that that's and I think we're looking at significantly more than that with Darvish. I think Darvish is going to go six, probably seven years. The well, he's younger. The Strasburg contract barely. I mean, he's and, still young. And we sh- and we should talk about which big teams are going to be in the market for starting pitching. Yeah, I mean, it, the Dodgers will. Prob- Dodgers. The Dodgers will probably. The Cubs will probably be Yankees. Potentially, yes. Uh, no, they will be. They, I guarantee you, they won. Well, there's also so there's there's also like Shohei Otani, who I didn't. Yep advocate for because i just don't see any way that like recruiting him to milwaukee is a thing that's possible um, yeah i agree with that that's that's just i think that's an option for one of these big teams that's, well you said milwaukee has this money to spend could they just basically throw a stupid amount of money past what anybody else is willing to spend to get these guys yeah and i mentioned like a scenario how this could potentially play out if if arietta were to end up on the Brewers, and this is like a tiny tiny minuscule percentage of chance it could happen but if that were to happen, it would probably look something like the market not materializing. And what's him a, what's a max dollar doing, value per season? Do you think the Brewers could carry for one guy? I mean, on a could they pay thirty de- a year? It depends on the 
length of the contract. They could probably. Well, you said they have the room right now to do it. They they have they have a lot of payroll wiggle room. Do you think they could front load the contract, pay like you know, hey, fifty million dollars a year for the first year or two, and then that generally isn't done. Oh, well, the Brewers need to find a way to get these guys. They're going to have to overpay to get them to begin they're with. They're going to they're going to have to overpay to get somebody. Yeah. So it's going to take for something like that to happen. More so realistically, are you advocating to overpay for somebody? Yeah, I actually, I, I am. I mean, that's the only way to get these guys, correct? Yeah. No, I just wanted you to say it. That's no, I, I am. I think that I think time wise, there's never really going to be another time like this where it would make as much sense as it does right at this very moment. So once we get past the point that we realize that because the Cubs, the Dodgers, the Yankees, potentially other teams are going to get involved. I don't know whether or not that tends to be, you know, the angels always tend to find some money that they magically (laughs) want to be able to do something with, to make Mark, Mike Trout go Arizona potentially has, ah, they probably don't have any money. I take that back. The Astros potentially have some money that they can throw around. Ah, here's Um, the thing. Here's the thing. All these big teams you're talking about. I don't know. And this is this is one way that it could potentially work in the Brewers' favor for going to the top of the market because of the bonanza coming next year, because of what's lining up down the road, and because of the incredibly stringent – stringent's not the right word, but the incredibly draconian penalties now for being up over the luxury tax. Teams are desperate to get under the luxury tax. It's a tax. It's a mandate for the big teams, the Yankees, the Dodgers. They're all trying to now get under the luxury tax because it's so tough to – to what's the luxury that. tax at it's it grows to like 210 million over the next over the life of this uh contract but the penalties for being over it you're losing draft picks you're losing the the taxation and the money you get taxed on it is so high now like you're getting teams are getting hit for so much money um that the some of these top market teams may not like for instance the dodgers the Dodgers are going to have to pay up next year because Clayton Kershaw can opt out of his contract. And they're looking at having to offer for Clayton Kershaw. And so they also, you know, when you, you look at, you know, somebody like the Dodgers, they've been so high above the cap for years now, and they've been bringing it down, and that's been one of Friedman's mandates. But it, it's an issue, and I know the Yankees are talking also that they need to get under the cap this year. There has been discussion. They need to get under the cap this year because they want to have the flexibility to go after Harper, Machado, you know, this, this bonanza that's coming next year, this bumper crop of free agents like we've you know, rarely seen with so top I'm gonna, guys. I'm going to throw a couple of things out. And I think one of the things that could potentially help the Brewers if they did want to go and spend a lot of money on free agent starters – uh, not convinced, by the way, that Jake Arrieta is somebody that is going to be a frontline starter going forward. Um, I think that there are at least enough question marks that that needs to be acknowledged. And that I you, think you everybody's Darvish, thinking that at this point. And that you Darvish has had trouble actually matching his his uh, his underlying numbers um, for quite a long time now. Uh, but I think the fact that it's a pretty accepted fact that Miami wants to part with Giancarlo Stanton. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's going to be willing to take on that money, if with luxury tax concerns, you're going to then have uh, another team that's going to not want to be adv- or not wanting to allocate a lot of money to free agents because they need to to take on Stanton's contract, and so that potentially is going to be able to work out. But right now, from what I can tell, from what you're saying, is that. If they don't go forward and get Arietta or you Darvish or Otani, if he if he comes to the U.S., what is the option if you can't? Because more than likely, they cannot go and sign those players. It's going to be incredibly hard. Yeah. If oh, they uh, cannot do that. Then what is the then what is the plan forward? Because the plan going forward can't be to say the best plan is to do this thing that has a really really low probability of happening. Right. No, it was more, this was more kind of making the case that this is a weird time and you can, there's a possibility. You're making an intellectual case about this without having to worry about it happening. So what is is the option going forward then? Um, I think that we're looking, 
much more realistically, we're looking at um, Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn. No, that's that seriously is what it is. Much more likely, much more probable, and much I more think probable saying what will happen or what should happen. Much more probable in what can happen. <laughs> the no, likely that's not asked. That's not that's what I'm asking. Asked. In terms of what you want to, you I'm wanna, asking. Who do you think you they'll actually get this off season? I want no. I want you. I want to know what you think should happen this weekend. That is, or this weekend, this off season that has a realistic chance of happening. Like what you think is the realistic best path going forward. Lance Lynn probably. And you think that helps the team going forward? I think it helps them enough in the short term. Um, with back end concerns obviously being there and but I think it helps enough in the short term that it's a justifiable expense. Um you know, they have Ryan Braun's contract expiring in three years. So if the last couple of years of this end up being bad, well, they they can deal with some some dead money. They shouldn't have much other, you know, really poor bad money on the contract at that point. So they just don't have bad money on the books. So you can take a little bit of that risk on something I've, this is something you guys have known me for years. This is not something I've ever advocated before. I hate the idea of it, but this I think is, you're advocating for it because you know that the other opportunity, you know, the other avenue is trading prospects and you desperately don't want to do that. So you're trying that, to talk yeah. yourself into mid rotation starters as being the best possible solution. At this point, you've looked at it and said, I'd rather have bad money than no prospects or lose a top 200 prospect. Stop with the top 200 <laughs> prospect thing. No, it's, it's, um, there's some of that, but it's also. And by some, you mean a lot, right? What's that? By all, some, you mean all a lot. of. I, I think it's where I started the thought process was what are the other options? I think that's where it went to. But there was enough good evidence to, and enough, enough, you know, there are enough other good reasons to do it at this point that aren't that that like it it fits it there's a natural so fit you, for it so what do you think that the brewers need the most this offseason to be able to be legitimate postseason contenders uh starting pitching depth i think is the you think they need depth i think that they need depth of quality so <laughs> i don't know what that means depth of quality so we're, i'm not just talking about like lots they, of good pitchers they don't need they don't need a potential uh sixth seventh eighth starter they have those guys right. that's that's already around what sure. i want is for their for their f- current third starter which i guess would be brandon woodruff because we you know can't count on jimmy nelson coming back anytime we we don't know what the time frame looks like so yeah you know i want i want brandon woodruff to be pushed down you so he's instead of being the third best option he's the fourth hey best hold, hold on so, josh hater hold, hold on hold on hold on hold on okay so jason spitz asks he says uh the brewers were 11th in the nl in the nl and runs scored um how does uh stern shape the roster to score more runs in 2018 and i bring this up because you said the brewers need the pitching depth but were they a great offense this year no but i think they have more internal upside that way i guess if that makes sense they don't have pitchers i mean we were just talking about corbin burns last week right no i mean we were talking about guys like that i was gonna say i actually agree with ryan on this point though you you still think that pitching is the greater need or pitching is a greater need to go outside of the organization i think that top end pitching is the is the place they need to go outside the organization yeah i mean i think that they still need somebody at second base but i don't think you need to have an all a perennial all-star at second base to come on in i think that what the organization lacks is top end pitching yeah and if do they need to do something to bolster the offense do you think i i mean i could see them i i do think that they probably need to whether it's Neil Walker, whether it's somebody else's second base, I do think that they probably need a starting caliber second baseman. But I think that if you go from position to position, I think that you can make the other places maybe at catcher, but everywhere across the board, I think you have a legitimate claim that what they have in place projecting forward is a starting caliber first baseman, right fielder, left fielder, center fielder with Brinson, uh, shortstop's fine. Third base is fine with with Shaw. 
the only t- and I do think that first base is fine with with Thames or with Aguilar, depending on what you need to do there. Or Ryan Braun. Or Ryan Braun, even. Yeah, if you want to do that and you want to be able, to, if that is the path that they want to be able to go and they want to be able to use their outfield depth to be able to to go to left field so you can maybe put Santana in left, you have, you know, a Brett Phillips in center and you put Brinson in right or something weird like that. Like, sure, fine, let's do that. And then I would think that center field maybe could be a place that they could uh, upgrade as well then. But everywhere else across the board, projecting going forward, they're in pretty good shape. The only thing offensively would maybe be second base. Uh, I think if they don't bring Stephen Vogt back, and I don't think Stephen Vogt's a long-term answer, but if you don't bring him back, I think catcher is maybe a place you could see an upgrade. But what about Tyler Flowers? Is just no. Wait, what? You're, that no, was a really I, I definite reaction. I don't, I don't need Tyler Flowers on the team. Really? What You're, is Tyler Flowers going to add? Um, very solid all around play. Like he's a, he's a good pitch framer. He's a good, uh, defensive catcher. He is a good sort of across the board hitter for a catcher at this point. Like he's just a very solid player. He was worth two and a half to three wins last year in yeah. splitting time. And I think that he's a guy that you, splitting time with Manny Pena. I think you have a very effective duo there where they can, you know, really any he costs five million dollars he'd probably require a fairly decent prospect outlay to get to come in to come in for one year to play half time to come in for one year to play half time yeah i mean i i'm anticipating you would have to give up something i don't know jake gatewoody to get him no you'd have to go higher than that you think it's it's more than that i think for the braves to actually want to do that you'd have to give somebody you'd have to give a top 10 prospect Gatewood's outside of the top 10 for you at this point. Yes. In that 10 to 15 or 11 to 15 range. Yeah. He's outside my top 10, but okay. I, every organization has different, different needs, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I was trying to think before I brought it up, I was thinking, would I be willing to give up Corey Ray or Monty Harrison to get him? And I don't think I would. No, that'd I, be, I, no, I wouldn't. And Not for uh, one. Moreover, year. I would say that uh, knowing the Braves, anything that they would go for uh, Obviously, they're going to have some front office shakeups. I was just going to say, do we, do we know the Braves what anymore? Gonna do. But historically, they've wanted pitching. Well, right? but they're so loaded with pitching right now. They really that would still want. hasn't stopped them from loading up on pitching more. But they would want, I would imagine they would want some position players, especially some guys who potentially have wow. some power. I've been saying that for two years. It's true. So, okay. But, I, no, I'm, but to say, going back to the pitching comment, like... I don't see how getting somebody who is a third starter is going to come in and meaningfully move the needle forward. I get the point that it would be nice, that it'd be fine. But if you're looking at a team that potentially could be a 500 team in terms of true talent, getting a third starter isn't going to do anything. Well, and JP, you, you said before, you think they need a top-end starter, not just yeah. depth. So, I mean, right. they're, so they're if, not looking for just somebody to come in and pitch close to 200 innings. Right. I, well, think, they need, I think they need somebody who is going to be a front-end front starter. I, I understand that that is difficult. So I think that the best path going forward in terms of what I think is you go after on the trade market, you go after a top-end starter, whether it's Chris Archer, whether it's somebody that we don't know that is available at this time, you go for somebody that could lead the rotation. And if you don't get that, you get somebody relatively cheap that you know can fill innings. It doesn't need to be somebody who's going to require $20 million a year because I don't think that moves the needle forward in any meaningful sense. I think at that point you're saying you need innings because you can't trust the internal arms right now to be able to take on a massive workload. Hey, JP. Uh, I think, but hold on. I think that that's very true. I think that that's the issue is that you, I think Corbin Burns could come in and be an incredibly effective pitcher next year or Hader or um, Woodruff. I think that it, these guys do offer that upside. You were just talking upside. about Woodruff like, moving him out of the rotation. No, I was talking about moving him down from being your third best pitcher to your fourth. I wasn't talking about moving him out of the rotation. Just moving him so that he's not – you're not counting on him to be that – Got you. You have somebody else who can eat innings and be a stable force in there. I think that's more of the issue. 
than necessarily a front end guy who I think we could see that happen next year from so a number of guys. So then why do you spend $20 million a year to get somebody who you're confident can throw 200 innings? Like, why can't you go and get some, like, I don't know who is, who is available. I had it pulled up for a second, but like, like Jason Vargas can do it. Chris Tillman can do it. If you like, can get one of those guys, I'm pretty okay with okay, that. Okay, so hold on. JP, you were talking about the Brewers. Really, if they want the front-end starter, you think they're going to have to make a trade to be able to do it? Yes. Okay, so uh, on Twitter, Beer the Deer asks, uh, if the Brewers are going to trade a member of the 25-man roster this offseason not named Broxton, who is it? And then I'll add, is that somebody they could use to get – get a Chris Ar- well, again we've used Archer before I think because there's been talk about him but get a Chris yeah. Archer yeah I mean I think we've mentioned it before that I think if if you're looking for a sneaky person that's going to be able to headline a trade it's Domingo Santana mm-hmm. and I don't I think, think that, that I don't think that that's the best possible solution but I think that if you are going to look at where your organizational depth is the outfield you're going to look at where a potentially young put uh impact bat is Santana showed that this year, somebody who's got defensive issues, somebody you wonder if projects to be a great hitter going forward. I don't, I think that he showed a lot of great things this year. Um, But I think that he still has some length in his swing. He still has some question marks about plate discipline. Um, Even though he did take really good steps forward. I still think that Domingo Santana is a good player. Well, Um, we talked about, he does have pedigree. He was a well thought of prospect. He's he's not a guy that we're just trying to cash in. who came out of nowhere. Absolutely. And if you're going to trade for a top end starter, you've got to get give up something good. And if you're not going to give up prospects and you need to go with somebody on the 25 man roster, I think that Santana is the place that you end up turning to. I think Santana is the most likely. I would also toss in uh, Thames as another guy in that same category, just because there is some positional redundancy there. They yeah, but I do wonder options. I do wonder. If, to. Well, OK, I suppose trading trading Thames just in general, I, I take the point. Um, trading Thames to be able to go get a front end starter, I don't see that as being feasible. You don't think that he's not going to headline a deal? He'd he be like throwing on it at best. Well, not he? a not a throw in. He's worth more than that. team who is a team that wants to trade a top end starter that would want a thirty year old first baseman? Yeah, you got a guy in his early thirties now. I mean, it's the exact same conversation we're having about Braun. Like, well, to be part of a deal. We're talking about being part of a deal because even right. so like if it's Domingo Santana and somebody like like a top top end. I mean, if, if you're talking about getting Chris Archer, Domingo Santana is a starting point for that discussion, and that's fine. Yeah. But he's you're gonna it, that's going to include at least one of Woodruff and Burns, probably Burns, and it's probably also going to include multiple other depth options from within the system. So you're still talking about having to deal a bunch of other things along with it. Thames is not worth as much as Santana, obviously, but he is worth, uh, he's not a throw in. He's not, he, he could be a significant piece of a deal. No, no. Stop saying he'd be a significant piece. He wouldn't. Well, significant is not a defined. Just because he's in the deal doesn't mean he's significant. I don't know why a team would say, yeah, we want a 32-year-old first baseman. Who's, I mean, does he rate as a great defensive first baseman? I think he's fine. But, I mean, I I think the, the thing is, if you're trading Eric Thames from your big league roster and having to include one of your top end prospects, that doesn't make any sense. Because then you're going to need to then address first base. Ryan Braun. Well, um, again, you're gonna need I mean, to and, and I only bring that up because Braun just had that interview where he talked about. To, but then you need to address left field. Well, they have all that. Well, yeah. Then, yeah, you're filling for. I mean, because if that. you're going into the, if you're trading all of these people for a top end starter, and then you're going into the season with your outfield being Brett Phillips, Brinson, and Santana, there's not a lot that's proven there. Well, at that point, if you're trade, if you were like moving Braun around into the infield, maybe you don't see them then move Broxton. You know what I mean? Like then that becomes a thing right, where they but that's go. Not, but again, that's not anything that you're going to say that is for sure a good piece that we want to have in our center field to to anchor our lineup. Sure, there's yeah, I mean there's lots of options here, and it could be. I mean, should we be shocked if it was Travis Shaw? I would be. I mean. 
Well, like we talked about, Shaw kind of popped up this year with, when people didn't expect. He kind of popped up this year, and he's also right in that sweet spot of a career where guys tend to put up their best seasons. What was he, 26 this year? Uh, I'd have to check. No, I think he's a little older than that. He might have even been 27, the famous age 27 season thing. So he, it, he was da, 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 da. right, but then so you trade him, and then you need to then Fill third. address third base, right? But if they're, doing... I mean, I get the I get the point too of saying that if you trade Santana, then you need to to address right field. Totally get that, but I do think that finding corner outfielder is better than having to find somebody at third base. Uh, Shaw was twenty seven this year. It was the age twenty seven season. I'm just saying if if Shaw moves. If that were to happen, which I don't think is very likely at all, but if that if, if that sort of thing happens, we're talking about a lot of things shuffling. We're talking about a pretty major reshuffling of the deck at this point because, yes, they would have to bring somebody in for third base at that point and whatever. That that, that would be, need to be a thing that was happening. Shaw's not going to bring a guy like that back, like, uh, like a, a Chris Archer or somebody like that. So, Well, not by himself, but he could be a uh, very... Yeah, I don't think he'd even be the headlining piece to get Archer. Depends so. what else is in the deal. Anyways, last thing we're going to talk about. Uh, Keith Anderson asks, uh, when did the postseason celebration become a predictable part of the victory script? And how far away How far away are we from the ACL, ALCS brought to you by Dom Perion? <laughs> well, this goes back at least to, uh, so baseball history-wise, this goes back at least to... Um, 1986 because they were putting plastic in front of all the lockers and everything well so that the players could spray beer and champagne all over each other when the red Sox because that story is the one that costas tells in ken birds baseball and so i, I mean this has been going on you know honestly my I, lifetime i only brought it up because you can go back and find pictures of old ball players in the clubhouse after winning pennants oh yeah and they're just soaked drenched oh they're in, they're, in they're, the they're, they're soaked and yeah i'm sure they're a lot more liquored up than what guys are nowadays yeah oh yeah so uh, I think this tends to be more a matter of there are so many cameras around in a broadcast nowadays, and they do so much more post-game than they ever used to do that we just see more of the celebration than we ever used to see. Well, and it's, it's become part of the, yeah, the coverage. It's part of the package. Like, I don't know. JP, I do still you even... remember Mark Atanasio with his goggles on charging in in 2008. Oh, like, sure down the down the tunnel into the thing to to go have his moment of being a a real live ball player well that's that's why the owners buy teams so yes jp do you even leave the the game on afterwards to see all the celebration or are you just kind of like oh uh click over to uh i don't know is a premier league game starting after that <laughs> that doesn't even make any sense well um, it was pretty close but- i mean the game runs pretty late and you're probably looking to see what's starting over in the uk he no. likes watching rugby. Um, no, from New Zealand. Ru- yeah, New Zealand rugby games. Okay. What's that? Um, I think you're struggling with time zones. Um, <laughs> but I will. I will say they don't start that, at eight a.m. Uh, <laughs> I think you'd be looking at like six a.m. Like best, right? Because midnight midnight on the East Coast is six a.m. in in uh, in England. GM sure. Yeah. Um, but I no, I don't watch the post game stuff. Do you like anybody that does analysis on any of the networks right now? For what? Baseball analysis. Is there anybody that does analysis that you like listening to? A-Rod. Uh, I love listening to uh, Pedro Martinez. Oh, yeah. Good call, too. I love too. listening to Pedro. Pedro Martinez. Yeah, 100% Pedro. I mean, so there are some guys that it's worth leaving the TV on and suffering through a little bit of the, the champagne celebration. I like the pregame more than the post for some of that stuff though. well i mean because pregame you're actually like trying to get information about what's going right. to happen you're a- analyzing you, the game after as you watch to the afterward. game i mean they're just talking about what you already saw and then it's just hustle and heart and gratitude for the most part did anybody like the the pete rose a rod thing that used to take place i always thought that was a distraction i didn't really care well and, I, I hate pete rose so much that well, i just don't want to even acknowledge his existence yeah it's like you know really a degenerate gambler doesn't need to be on tv talking about the games anyways <laughs> that went away with Jimmy the Greek. Exactly. Well, we thought it did, and then they brought Pete back. So, um, do, what about uh, TBS versus uh, Fox right now? Do you do you have a preference, JP? No, I'm trying to think. I who's mean, who's even on TBS? Give me no, give me BA and if, Smoltz. I want if, that. If, if whoever is the first one to get rid of the strike zone 
like the the virtual strike zone thing on the screen. Whoever's the first one to get rid of that, I will watch it. So you, you advocate less on the screen, just I advocate less on the screen. I advocate less using the strike zone as if like they're accurate in any manner. And then it just makes people get mad because people get need need everything to be fair and perfect. And well, I, I think just don't need to hear everyone complain. That's probably the biggest thing is you can find a lot of people who follow the the issue of auto, automated strike zones and how well the pitch effects and everything work. They're not thrilled with the way the, the accuracy of those. Right. Yeah, and, Harry Pavlidis. Yes. <laughs> and obviously, it's when you're watching it, it's hard to, like, see that and then not get angry, especially if you have a rooting interest. Right. Like, there's no other way that's going to work. Right. But also not care about any of the bad calls that went in favor of your team. Well, that's because that doesn't happen. Yeah. The bad calls don't go in favor. They're just make-up calls for other bad calls. That's factually correct. <laughs> it's true. That's that's how it works. Isn't that exactly how it works? That's, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we've probably gone enough today. So, and we didn't even get to the brewery question. We were going to talk about breweries at some point. And I had, I, I was going to ask uh, JP what his uh, favorite coffee roaster was, just so he had something to talk about on here. <laughs> <Some> but, <balance. laughs> oh, look, JP can participate. Yeah, exactly. So, but we'll, I think we'll have plenty of time the rest of the, the, the fall and winter to talk about it. So, um, that's going to do it for the show this week. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. You can also submit questions to uh, milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.